This is a crowd podcast. Just to warn you before we start, this episode contains references to addiction and suicide. If you don't want to listen to that, check out our episode about Chadwick Boseman. Robin Williams takes a sip of water and looks at the picture. There's a few on the walls of the psychologist's office. Big, bold stuff. Modern, expensive looking. Ones of a sunflower. But it's abstract. No petals, no color. Just the seeds swirling and spiraling towards the center. The psychologist is talking. Robin's quiet, concentrating. But... His mind is working. The picture behind the psychologist's head is changing. New possibilities are growing in Robin's imagination. As the psychologist winds things down, Robin doesn't do what we would do. She says, what a good conversation they've had. How he's given her insight into his life. And Robin agrees. But then this is what he blurts out. That one scares me. It looks like an anus. And he is off again. Another picture, an ink blot. Looks like a vagina. No, a chicken vagina. Actually, aren't chicken vagina already a punk band? (laughs) It comes at a thousand miles an hour. It comes from all angles and it comes from the deepest recesses. It's the final flurry in the blizzard. Never mind the stream of consciousness. The last 40 minutes have been a great wave. At one point, Robin has an imaginary conversation with his own hand, gripping his fist and making a mouth with his thumb. He gives his hand a voice. Together, they reminisce about his teenage masturbation. At other times, he shrinks back into the sofa, his voice still, slow and considered. He talks about the fear he felt when his father's voice dropped an octave and his temper rose a notch. You have to pay attention. Robin flits from one subject to another. He changes gear in a flash. He blindsides you. One thought sideswipes another. You never know where he's going, but you cling on and follow. And it doesn't always lead to a nice place. Robin can be cruel. Robin can be rude. He mocks people. He leers at others. You laugh. You also wince. But you also recognize something of yourself in Robin. He's unvarnished, unfiltered. The ego and the id laid bare. An inner monologue shouted from the rooftops. He captures something raw and human. At least, he does for now. Because Robin knows things can slip. The flow can dry up. The clarity can cloud. The edge dulls. At one point, Robin talks to the psychologist about death. He says... His friends are dying. He's in his mid-fifties and the funerals are getting more frequent. She asks him what worries him 
Is it that death is coming for him? Robin pauses. He looks down at the floor. It's not death that scares him. He's made peace with that. The idea of losing your mind, he says. That the mind will go away. As the motor bolt roars and the spray flies, the water skier squints into the Californian sun. It could be just another beach bump, another of America's beautiful people drawn to the state of sand and stars. But there's something different about this one. He's not showing off a six pack. He's not wearing a life vest. Instead, above his shorts, he wears a leather jacket over a white, t-shirt. Of course he does. He has to. He's the Fonz. It's 1977, but not for the Fonz. Not on Happy Days. Happy Days, one of the biggest programs on television, is set in America's sweet spot. On Happy Days, it's always the 1950s. It's a time after the recession of the 30s and the war of the 40s. It's a time before the culture clashes of the 60s and the corruption of the 70s. And for some, it's a golden age. Prosperity, peace, and the self-confidence of a new superpower. For them, Happy Days and its small-town teen adventures bring back simpler, more certain times. For others, though, by 1977, it's old news. And that's why the Fonz finds himself waterskiing. Happy Days writers are under pressure. They have to inject some excitement to bridge a generation gap, to bring in a new audience. And so they have the Fonz accept a bet to jump over a shark. The storylines get wilder. One of the show's bosses sees how the space race transfixed adults and how Star Wars won over their children. He wants an alien in Happy Days. He wants an alien called Mork to land in 1950s America. A lot of actors don't want to know. They can smell a show on the turn. But in Hollywood, there are always more. Here's where Robin comes in. Robin joins a long queue outside the studio. He doesn't worry about the direction of the show. He needs a payday. He's 26 bussing tables and pouring drinks between stand-up gigs. And Robin gets to the front. His name is called. He walks into a small room where two men wait to audition him. Robin says, nothing. No small talk, no charm, none of the motormouth energy he's shown on the comedy circuit. Instead, Robin turns to face the chair he's supposed to sit in. He bows low and, flipping his legs up towards the ceiling, Robin stands on his head. There's a glass of water on the table in front of him. Robin silently extends an arm and puts an outstretched finger into it, pretending to drink the water as an alien might. Robin gets the job. <laughs> and maybe that's what happens when you have been auditioning your whole life. When your childhood is spent backstage longing for the limelight. Because Robin's an only child to two very different parents. 
His father's all elegance and restraint. He lives through two world wars and emerges as an executive in the car industry that's booming. A man-made good, always working, always earning, not present. Robin's mother is younger, 16 years younger, perhaps even younger in spirit, a catwalk model. Angelic beauty, set off with a wicked sense of humour. Before society dinners, she picks out an expensive ball gown, fixes her makeup, and then applies one final touch, snipping an elastic band in two and stuffing it up her nostril. Later, where there is a pause in conversation, she fakes a sneeze, apologizing profusely as the elastic band dangles from her nose and over the table. Funny. As a boy, Robin roams alone around their mansion in the countryside outside of Detroit. He moves from room to room, making his own worlds, inventing his own fun. He plays hide and seek with Duke, that's a family dog, across the attic floor. He lines up armies of toy soldiers, recreating battles and voicing generals. Most of the time, it's Susie, the family's black maid, who looks after Robin. She cooks his food, cleans up after him, tells him off, and tells him stories. Just occasionally, Robin is invited down to his parents' dinner parties to be polite, to be interesting, to be amusing, to put on a show of sorts. That's how he impresses his parents. That's when he has their attention. And now he has everyone else's. Robin's one episode of Happy Days spawns a spin-off series, Mork and Mindy, and it's a smash. Robin is all eyes, innocence and slapstick. The studio have to hire an extra camera to catch all the looks and poses. Audiences fall in love with him. Some want to mother him. Some want to mother his children. Robin is being paid $15,000 a week. In LA, at that age, in that era, that money gets spent one way. Blow. Marijuana's too dopey. Heroin's too messy. Psychedelics are tainted by gruesome murders in the Hollywood Hills. But cocaine? Cocaine is the champagne of drugs, clean, fizzy, reassuringly expensive. It flows up from South America and sloshes around Los Angeles. It keeps the city dancing, talking and loving until the early morning. By the time Malka Mindy is on its fourth season, Robin's the lead guest on The Tonight Show, a crossover star from coast to coast. He comes onto set, booming in the voice of a TV preacher. He claps at the boom microphone like a performing seal begging for fish. The host asks him gently if he ever experiments with foreign substances in his body. Robin bursts into a flurry of twitches and sniffs. He gurns. He dabs at his face frantically, jokingly. He doesn't take cocaine, he says. Cocaine, he says, is God's way of telling you you're making too much money. <laughs> the audience laugh and applauds. But he does. He takes a lot. 
And his problem, like Hollywood's, is getting hard to hide. Freddie Prinze, another dazzling comic talent, also locked into the drug scene, kills himself. John Belushi, a hell-raising actor, dies of an overdose the morning after hanging out with Williams. Richard Pryor, an idol of Robbins, almost dies after setting himself alight mid-binge. On set, Robbins a wreck, sweating, sleeping, behind on his lines. He plays Mork from instinct, a kind of muscle memory. But the momentum slowing down, the shows slipping down the ratings, the party's coming to an end, and Robbins still living at warp speed. And one night, it's Richard Pryor who warns Robin, tells him he has to get out of this town to save himself before he kills himself, before it's too late. Skagway's a gold rush town. A century ago, it sprung up as a trading post. People rushed from all over America after reading reports of gold in Alaska's hills. Skagway sold them food, booze, and hope as they chased their fortune. Now in 2002, the gold's long gone. The hills remain. They loom high and cold over a quiet main street. It's the hills that Robin's come for. The snow, the solitude. He's shooting a film, The Big White, it's not a big film. They really are now. And as Robin gazes out of his hotel window at the edge of the world, there's too much time, too little to do. Too much to think about. His career's fading away. His manic energy has brewed up bitter in middle age. He isn't known for playing a fast-talking rebel radio DJ now, for taking on the establishment. Instead, the knife twists on easier targets. Some would like America's new war on terror to bomb Afghanistan back to the Stone Age. Robin tells the television audience it would be an upgrade. He says Muslims celebrate two holidays, Ramadan and Kaboom. He compliments a woman in the audience on her breasts. Robin's always lived on the edge but the edge of acceptable has retreated. This isn't the 70s. Of course, there's another side to Robin, a part that blooms late and bright, a part that appears when the pinball monologues and chorus line of impressions fall silent. It's in an English teacher who stands strong by his principles and pupils, or a therapist who unpicks his own past by setting a protege straight. Robin finds he doesn't have to be technicolor. He doesn't have to be always on. He can paint scenes in a subtler palette. He can cut through with silence and stillness. There's an Oscar. There are golden globes. The boy who performed to impress his absent parents is now a man entertaining the world. A uniquely gifted actor. One who wears the masks of tragedy and comedy just as well. But it's been years since those glories, several years and even more films because Robin doesn't pick and choose his roles. It's not the money, not now, 
Divorce has cost him, but he's a millionaire many times over. It's something else that drives him to keep saying yes to films, to only take a month or two off between projects. It's a need to be seen, to stay in the spotlight. But the spotlight can be harsh. Robin's latest movies have been sugary and sentimental, junk fodder with Robin's name over the door, middling films designed to sit the whole family still for a few hours rather than get anyone on the edge of their seats. And Robin's running out of credit with the critics. The gentle power of Goodwill Hunting or Dead Poet Society doesn't glow so bright. There's a plea from an LA Times writer after another scathing review. Robin Williams, enough already. Remember being funny? Maybe you could try that again. How hard could it be? And Robin takes it all to heart. He wonders how he'll be remembered, whether the great highs will be lost in a fog of flops and duds. It nags at Robin. It chips away in the quiet moments, in that snowy town. His mind tots up his wins and losses, trying to find where he stands, where he's going. One day, Robin walks down Skagway's main street. There are two-story buildings on either side. They've barely changed in a century. Wooden fronts, hand-painted signs, selling belts, pelts, reindeer meat, gifts for the folks back home. Robin doesn't need any of them. He needs peace. The peace that comes in a bottle. He hasn't touched drink or drugs for nearly 20 years. He got out of Hollywood. He kicked the old habits, swapped them for an addiction to work, but now work's not cutting it. It's the problem, not the solution. Robin buys a small bottle of Jack Daniels. He slurps it down. And for a moment, the warmth holds him tight. The fears recede. The voices fall quiet. The wagon disappears over the horizon. Here's another quote, this time from Robin. Within a week, I was buying so many bottles, I sounded like a wind chime walking down the street. But Robin's pain isn't going away. The symptoms are physical at first. He's got stomach pains, constipation, blurred vision, insomnia. His joints ache, his hands tremble, and he leans on the one crutch that's always there, self-medication. He works, he takes the next project, he hides his shakes in his pocket on set, but there's no peace. And what no one sees is what's happening inside. Robin's brain is breaking down. Clumps of proteins are clogging the circuits that used to crackle and fizz. Robin doesn't know it's happening, but he feels it. Louis body dementia. In early 2014, he's in Vancouver, filming a sequel to Night at the Museum, and he's slipping deeper into the darkness and isolation. He shuttles between his set and his hotel room, silent and stooped between takes. The lines slip his mind, 
there's panic attacks and paranoia. His makeup artist, a longtime friend, says he should hit the city's stand-up clubs to feel the love, to fall back into his oldest groove. And Robin breaks down in tears. He sobs, but he tells her why, how his greatest fear has come to pass. I don't know how anymore. I don't know how to be funny. And the cycles get faster. The spiral gets steeper. Robin bounces between obsessions, chasing phantoms. He's convinced a friend is in mortal danger and has to be talked out of driving to see them at three in the morning. He thinks thieves are planning to steal his watch collection, so he moves it to a new secret location. He's suddenly sure his children have been damaged by his divorces and his endless work, and he won't believe them as they try to put him at ease. That scattergun energy that lit up the world has turned inwards, and Robin knows, whatever the doctors say, there's no way back. The slide can be slowed, but not stopped. Robin slips away silently. There's no hint of what's coming, no note once it's done. Simply a door locked on the world, a belt pulled free of a waistband, and a conviction he can't live a life of diminishing returns. And then comes the love, rushing into the void Robin leaves behind. It comes from everywhere, from every era, the doubts that dog Robin in Alaska, they're buried under an avalanche of emotion. No one remembers the bad films. No one remembers the misjudged jokes. People reminisce about his best performances. But much more than that, they remember how Robin made them feel. Tributes pile up around America. On his star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Thousands of fans have in the Boston Park where parts of Goodwill Hunting were filmed, using chalk to write their messages on the in Boulder where Mork and Mindy were set, flowers and messages spill across the sidewalk, great splatters of color against the gray concrete. The schedules fill with Robin's films. On the late night chat shows, they replay his previous appearances one host stands on his desk and declares allegiance to his captain. They remember a connection, one that first forms in an empty mansion outside Detroit and then reaches through the screen, big and small, into houses all over the world. And the final tribute comes from the most famous home in the world, the White House. President Barack Obama says what Robin meant to him and to millions of others. Robin Williams was an airman, a doctor, a genie, a nanny, a president, a professor, a Peter Pan, and everything in between. He was one of a kind. He arrived in our lives as an alien, but he ended up touching every element of the human spirit. If you've been affected by any of the issues we spoke about in this podcast or are worried about someone you love, 
please call the Samaritans at 116123. Someone will always be there to listen, day or night, and it's free for all UK phone numbers. Or go to crowdnetwork.co.uk forward slash helplines to find a list of people you can go to for help. This episode of Death of a Film Star was written by Mike Henson and performed by me, Elroy Spoonface Powell's Spoon the Voice Guy. It was edited by Phil Brown. For research, we read Robin, Dave Itzhoff's biography of Robin Williams. We also watched the film Robin Williams, Come Inside My Mind, and Pamela Stevenson's Shrink Rap interview with Robin from 2007. We read from the archives of New York Magazine, The Guardian, and The New York Times. The music we used is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If this is your first episode, go and listen to our ones about Heath Ledger or Chadwick Boseman. And if you want a new podcast to listen to, we have another series called Death of a Rockstar, which is about Whitney Houston, John Lennon, George Michael, and Prince. We'll have a new Film Star episode next Tuesday. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, Next Best Picture. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.